All right. Hello, Idiots on Prey, the Too Ugly for TV podcast, the vodcast version, the bonus version. Hello, Barrett. Hey, how are you, sir? I am well. To anyone tuning in for the first time, that is Barrett Antar Goodwin, musician in Philadelphia. I am Nathan Timmel, comedian in Iowa City. We have known each other for more years than should be legal, and we uh, talk. And hopefully you uh, tune in and go, oh, well, that was, that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I'll see. Um, today, I want to start with the phrase, we're going to talk about fear. And I want to start with the phrase, bury the lead, which I'm sure you're familiar with, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. To anybody that, uh, for any reason, wouldn't be, it means there's a big story on hand. But instead of opening with the big story, you open with something different and you hide the big story. It's called burying the lead. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to do that by, since we're talking about fear, I'm going to talk about the most afraid I have ever been in my life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting because it was post-event, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. We are speaking on February 10th, and I'm pretty sure what I'm about to talk about took place in February. Um, my wife is much better with dates than I am. I, it, was, it was four years ago, probably. I think my son was two years old. And uh, he took an ambulance ride to the emergency room. I'll, I'll backtrack. He one day had a seal cough. He is what we called it. He, he, was, <gasps> he was, he was breathing like that. And we could see every time he tried to inhale or exhale as he coughed, we could see his ribs. He was uh, having problems breathing. And so we took him to urgent care and they said, oh, not a big deal. Um, I don't remember exactly what they did, but they said he, he should be fine. If this happens, maybe they gave him a steroid shot or not a shot, but they said, if this happens again, uh, two things you can do are take him into the bathroom and turn on the shower, get some steam into his lungs or the exact opposite, take him outside because it's winter and uh, cold air should snap him out of it. So hmm. fine. Several days later, maybe a week later, he gets the cough back again. And so my wife tries both options, uh, bathroom, outside, nothing's changing. So she says, I'm going to take him to urgent care. And this is all happening in the morning because I remember I had to take my daughter to preschool. And she takes him to urgent care. I take my daughter to preschool and she calls while I'm, she's only been there like five minutes. And she says, they want to call an ambulance. They want him to go to the emergency room. And I immediately go into denial, which is not, it's not, this isn't happening denial. It was more like, why would they want to take him to the emergency room? He's fine. You know, they said if he coughs like that, this, it's not a big deal. It was, it was more a confused denial than an outright, uh, this isn't happening. And so I said, it, it doesn't matter what happened. The, the long and the short of it is you, you listen to your doctors. Apparently he had really low oxygen levels. So the, the breathing was affecting him, obviously. So I dropped my daughter off. And in the time it takes me to drop her off and head back to urgent care, I pull up just in time to see my two-year-old son being wheeled out of the office on a gurney. And there's an ambulance there and they throw him on and I make, I'm just looking at him, it sort of freaks me out when you see just a two-year-old, a tiny, tiny child, a toddler uh, being taken into an ambulance. And uh, my wife and I make eye contact and she's freaking out. I'm still sort of in denial mode or just thinking, oh, okay, well, good. It's, it's good we live in America. He's gonna get in an ambulance, he's fine you know, no big deal. 
Um, maybe that's a coping mechanism. I don't know. Uh, follow the ambulance to the hospital best I can. It, it loses me really quick because it gets to run red lights and cool shit like that. Um, park the car, make myself, make my way down to the emergency room, and they're going to admit him into the hospital. And again, I'm, I'm sort of like, oh, okay, well, good. Let's get this banged out. Um, admit him to the hospital. I don't know exactly where he goes. It was not just a children's ward, but a specialty ward. And his, his fever peaked somewhere around 104, maybe, maybe even higher, 106. Pretty high. Yeah, it, not good. And he was there for three days. And at some point, they pulled uh, the Dr. House, I think Gregory House from the TV show. I think I can't remember if it's Gregory or not. But um, what he always did was throw a wide swath of antibiotics at it and see if that knocks out the problem because they, they couldn't figure out what it was. And that's actually worked. Uh, after several days, they, they just hit him with a ton of antibiotics. He cleared up. The doctor freaked out. She's like, oh, look at Truman. He's good. And she said something that was insane because for three days, they were the most wonderfully professional people in the world. They'd come in and say, okay, well, hmm, we can't figure this out. It's not this. Let's try this. Okay. Well, and, and I just, in the entire time, I'm like, oh, good. They're on it. And after he was better, she sort of admitted in a way, one of those outbursts, she said like, oh, we couldn't figure out what it was. We were all so worried about him. And that after the fact, I mean, if she had done that during the, <laughs> the time he was in the, 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 the bed, um, I don't know if it was the intensive care unit, whatever you want to call it, wherever he was, if they had come in and said, holy shit, what's wrong with this kid? they know that the parents are going to freak out. Instead, I was just there, as I said, for three days going, okay, we're in the best country in the world. We've got the best medical care, even though I know that's bullshit, but I know it's a modern country. Thank God we're not in Ethiopia to throw Ethiopia under the bus. Sorry, Ethiopia. Um, but when the, the best, at the end, they think that it was bacterial pneumonia. They, they never really put a handle on it, but they said, we're going to go with bacterial pneumonia. And they, they released him. And I think it was that night, it all caught up to me at once. The idea that I could have lost my son, that, that they didn't know what was going on, that here I was confidently ignorant that everything was going to be okay. And yet whenever they would leave the room, they would go have hushed discussions on why isn't this kid getting better? What are we doing? What do we need to try? And it was a Hail Mary to throw a ton of antibiotics into his system. And it, it, I, it just, it freaked me the fuck out. The idea that my son could have died, that they didn't know what was going on. And as I said, it's a strange fear to happen after the fact, after everything was okay, that everything then hit me harder than it did while it was occurring. And I don't know if that's natural. I don't know if that's normal, but that's what happened to me. And that's how I buried the lead because the big story this week is you, my friend, went through a pretty interesting uh, life event over the past month. Um, yeah. Anybody that tunes in regularly, and I actually did get a couple messages asking, where have you guys been? And I didn't say anything until this week after the fact with, I think, one friend who I said, okay, everything's 
fine. I think I can tell you this. Um, take it away. Um, well, I suppose I wasn't prepared to talk about this, but I suppose we can. Um, Sorry, I thought I thought that was a given when we spoke last week. Yeah. I said, let's, let's talk about your life event. It's it's very um, big, so <laughs> apologies. Uh, no, it's okay. I mean, I suppose it was a very similar situation. You know, um, I had gone to get a COVID test for a gig that I had. Our studio session it was like a live session, like back in the day where everybody's sitting in the same room and shit, you know? But we had to be all, right? We all had to be masked up, but we all had to get COVID tests ahead of time. So we did, and uh, they said, "Hey, you have a little bit of a heart murmur here. You need to go have this checked out." And I was like, "Okay, whatever." So I've since I've been in Philly, I've I have a new primary. So I went to my new primary, and she said, "Yes, you do indeed have a heart murmur. You need to go see this cardiologist." The cardiologist said, yes, you do indeed have one. You need to go see this other guy so we can see what's going on. And I guess he injected some dye into me that showed the way my blood circulated. Like you ever drink really cold water in the morning, like after not having had anything to drink, like since like eight o'clock the night before or something. And you yeah, I try not to. I, I usually go room temperature, but I, I've okay. had the sensation. But rarely. you know, you feel it go down your esophagus. You feel it spread out in your stomach. You're like, oh, that's where my stomach is. And that's where <laughs> this is, right? So that's basically what happened. I could feel the heat circulating through my body. And it's like that determined my rate of blood flow, I suppose, or whatever it was. And then they told me I needed surgery. And uh, they said, listen, one of your valves isn't working right. And it's a congenital thing. It's, uh, I think it's the same thing. My mother died when she was just about, just under 50. And they're like, listen, it's probably the same thing, you know? So they, they went in and they set up a time to deal with it. So they went in and they- well, can I, Let me interrupt quickly because that right there is, as, as you mentioned, you got this, it started with a COVID test. We are in the middle of a pandemic and at least for a, quite a while, there was no elective surgery. They were trying to keep the hospitals open for COVID patients. So this was not a matter of, oh, you got something going on with your heart. Okay, well, in July, when things clear up, let's get you taken care of. They I mean, I could have. Uh, they told me I had about 18 months. <laughs> so about 12 to 18 months to live if I didn't do anything about it. And if I did, oh, yeah. then I could live a nice, healthy life. And so... And you didn't feel like pushing I, um, it. To, all right, let's do it at month 17 and see how that works. Yeah, exactly. No, because I had started to feel short of breath. If I would like run up and down a flight of stairs really fast, I'd be more tired than I should be. Do you know what I mean? If I went jogging or something like that, I'd be more tired than I should be. And it was something that was very similar. So I see, started to have symptoms. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I talked about burying the lead, and I think that might be the lead right there. Black people jog? Exactly. Well, not after a mod arbory, we've stopped. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. decided to give a break. <laughs> wow, that was that was fantastically dark. Holy shit, I am proud of you. That was... Wow. Well done, my friend. 
God. Hey, one of my best friends is a comedian. What do you, you know, where do you think I get it from? <laughs> See, in my head, I was thinking Anchorman and going, oh, I'm going jogging or maybe jogging. So, you know, I was just in my head thinking that and then you took it to a fantastic place. Holy shit, that's horrible. So, 18 months to live. And so, uh, so they basically said, listen, we have to uh, go in and fix this valve. And then you'll be literally have another 50 years of what, you know what I mean? Like, like once it's done, it's literally, I go back to normal and live a normal life. And so they, they did the repair and the anesthesia had a crazy effect on me. I was knocked out for like three days. Hmm. Like I went in on a Thursday and I woke up Sunday evening. Do you know what I mean? I went in like Thursday at five in the morning. The surgery was at like 9.30 or something. And they knocked me out, which was pretty cool, I suppose. Um, and yeah, I didn't a, wake I up. A, I had a colonoscopy last year because, you know, we're of that age where the finger tickle in the colon and all that. Yeah, nice. And I remember the anesthesia because... I was laying on the table, having a perfectly normal conversation, you know, talking to the doctors, saying something mildly racist, probably. And uh, then I woke up as right. like, when I think back, I'm like, wait a second. I remember being clear and lucid and then waking up. There was no, you know, there was no drowsy. Yeah. There's no effect. It was, it was a switch. I was having a conversation gone. Yeah. And then you were out. Yeah. yeah, that's basically what happened. And I you woke up yours Sunday. Little, there's a difference between sticking a tube in your butt and you needed to be under, under. Because if yeah, I out, wake out. up, oh no, he's got a tube in his butt. You but, wake up, no, yeah, and, No, so they knocked me the fuck out. And I woke up on Sunday evening, basically. You know, mm -hmm. like I was out for like a good, that crazy reaction to it. But I stayed in the hospital for a few days and everything was good. So they sent me home and my sister came to get me because I was going to go kind of rehab at her place. And I started having these weird kind of seizure things. Like I, like I was fully conscious and my eyes didn't roll in the back of my head, but it was really weird. And then, so she said, listen, bro, we're going to the emergency room. So we went to the emergency room and while I, and so they ran some tests and shit. And while I was in there, I was doing basically almost like what your son was doing. Like I couldn't, no matter what I did, I couldn't get enough oxygen. And I was like, <gasps> and I couldn't, like I could feel it going in and it just wasn't circulating right. And I guess apparently where the valve is, is right over the electrical system in the heart. So when it get with the repair they did caused some swelling, which caused some things to just fire out of order and stuff. And it was like, a near-death experience every five to seven minutes for about two hours, <laughs> you know? And I was just like, and, you know, it sounds overly dramatic, but like... No, it doesn't sound really, overly dramatic really, at all. Like, it really feels like you're going to die. Like, that's what it feels like. It feels like you're going to die. Like, it feels like you're drowning, you know, except you're breathing, but, but nothing is happening. Like, I'm going to say something yeah. horrible, not really, but because I'm not trying to compare apples to oranges, I'm just trying to relate in the cheapest, shittiest way I can. It, it, the, I remember 
clear as a bell the first time I ever had the wind knocked out of me. Mm-hmm. I was a kid. Uh, it was at my grandmother's house. Someone threw a basketball and hit me right in the chest. And mm-hmm. I'd never heard of the situation the, the, of having the air knocked out of you, the wind knocked out of you, the lungs yeah. collapsing and shooting. Air. And I just the idea of <gasps> I, I had no idea what was going on because oh, yeah. I was just a kid. It's not a good feeling. So nah. to be an adult and to know wait, I didn't just have the wind knocked out of me yet. I feel like I'm, so I'm not trying to say I've experienced it, but anybody that's had the wind knocked out of them knows it is an incredibly fearful feeling to not be able to get out. It's like, yeah, it's like that for like 10 or 15 seconds at a clip. So I don't think you're being overly dramatic at all. Oh, it it was terrible. It was awful. It was awful. It's not something, here's the thing. If you've ever had a near death experience, when you're done with it, you want to bottle that feeling and sell it to people. Do you know what I mean? Because, like, here's what happens. Like, you think you're going to die. And in that moment, really many things become really clear. Like, you know, your vision gets super sharp because you start thinking, like, you're thinking about, like, your life and how you're not going to have it and how you're not ready to go and all this other obvious shit. But you also think about the things that you actually want to achieve and the people you're not going to be able to say goodbye to. And it's only a handful, right? You may know a thousand people, but really only maybe 10 tops, you know, show up in that in that moment that you're like, oh, no, I didn't get to tell this person this thing or what about this or what about this? You know what I mean? It's like, I, didn't, I didn't get to tell Bob to fuck off one last time. I mean, that's part of it. You know, like I didn't bang that chick in high school. What was I thinking? <laughs> you know? Oh, but, there's a path I could go down. The number of chicks I have not had had sex with, that that, <laughs> that would be in the thousands there. Would be the, you talk about the, the people, <laughs> if I were to go down the, the women I wanted to have sex with yeah. but didn't. I mean, it's always the ones, the ones you have sex with are cool. The ones you shouldn't have had sex with and did are cool. It's the ones you wanted to and didn't through your own fault. Those are the ones that stick with you ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Failure so, always sticks. With, like they, they interviewed yeah. Rams coach Dick Vermeil. Uh, I think he won the Super Bowl twice. And uh, they said, what does it feel to be like a Super Bowl winning coach? And he goes, you forget. He said, the failures, they stick with you. Like the time you made it to the playoffs and lost, he said, that's what sticks with you. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Cause you feel like there's, you feel like there's something that you could have done that would have made it. And maybe it is like, I don't believe in like, that's the other thing that like this kind of experience shows you, like you can't just constantly live in the past, but that being said, you can learn from it. Right. Like, you know, like, okay, so you, you win a couple Super Bowls and you make it to the playoffs and you don't. Well, what did you do differently? Like, maybe the other team was just better than you, right? Like, that's just what happens. Maybe the wind was blowing, the stars were aligned and shit. Some of it is, none of it's your fault. But most of life, like, I think we forget how much say we have in our own lives. You know what I mean? Like, when they say, somebody said it, maybe it was Stallone you know, the brilliant philosopher Sylvester Stallone. I think he said something. He did write Rocky. He's not a dumb guy. No, I mean, I, I, but I think he said, you're only in the prime of your life once. Don't waste it. Hmm. You know what I mean? 
And that's a real thing because most people, most of us don't deal with things until we're in crisis mode. You know what I mean? Oh, my doctor told me I have super high cholesterol and I'm gonna have a heart attack. So now I'm gonna switch to turkey bacon and I'm gonna walk on the treadmill for 38 seconds a day. You know what I mean? It's like, that's when, you know, like that we're, right. that's our big move, you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, but like, there's a way like, you know, eat healthy, exercise, keep your stress level low. It's kind of obvious. And everybody tells you this your whole life, eat right, get your checkups right, you know, like do basic shit. But if you actually do that stuff, it really makes the future of your life much better. Do you know what I mean? Like it allows for you to fully enjoy the prime of your life and then also not have a fucked up future. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. It does. And this is this is going to be a weird relation, but stay with me. Um, mm -hmm. What you made me think of is wealth and how mm -hmm. yeah. back in Perfect the day- example. Wealthy people were plump because food was scarce. So if you had money, mm -hmm. you, you ate up and you were a little fatter and the peasants were starving. And mm -hmm. we flipped that script. Today, yeah. wealthy people tend to, like, like Jeff Bezos, for example, um, you know, that, that guy's a rail. And Bill Gates is not, you know, a model, but he's also fit. You, you can eat organic. You can, um, you don't have to eat processed foods. Whereas in... Um, rural America, you have dollar stores and they don't sell produce um, or the right. inner city too. I mean, any, anywhere where, yeah. where there's poverty of the trade. Yeah, part. any place where poor people live. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's yeah. You're, you're buying Chef Boyardee, not a banana. You're buying something that will last and have leftovers. You don't have a leftover with fruit salad because it goes bad within an hour. Yeah. So today we flipped the script where wealthy people are much more fit and look better and people with less are generally and all Americans are fat but in terms of taking care of your life people that cannot afford to take care of their life not through any fault of their own they buy what they can and it's reflected in a physical I mean representation. I'll, I'll do you one not better but give you another example of it when I was in my mid-20s after college and I, I moved back to my folks place and uh, I was doing the whole New Brunswick thing, you know, like playing in New Brunswick and kind of figuring out how to be a working musician. And there was a place called Save Right around the corner and they had chicken legs and chicken wings and thighs and shit raw for 49 cents a pound. And I was like, 49 cents a pound? That's awfully cheap. All right, I'll get it. And then I was in like the regular, you know, stop and shop store and it was like 250 a pound i was like well what's the fucking difference it looks the same so one day i got some of the 250 a pound stuff and i got some of the 49 cent a pound stuff and i cooked them both and i ate them both like separate time like one one day one the next day and here's what i can tell you that after i ate the 49 cent a pound one i felt a little jittery i felt like not bad but just hyper jittery like weird like and and my brain was a little foggy and I was like oh that's weird okay whatever then the next day I had the other stuff and none of that stuff happened and I was like even if you try to be healthy 
when you're living, I'm going to get the raw chicken, I'm going to bake it, and I'm going to do this. The quality of it is just so significantly worse. You know what I mean? Aside from the fact that bologna sandwiches and, and Wonder Bread and Miracle Whip, you could feed a family of, of eight for $4. You know what I mean? Like a pack of bologna, some Miracle Whip, and some Wonder Bread will make a sandwich. You know what I mean? Like aside from the sheer volume that you can get if you buy cheap shit, even the stuff that you think is good, like the broccoli has more chemicals more quality, in it. Yeah. The, it's like, even if you're trying, you can't pull it, it made off, me, I don't think. You made me think of Super Size Me. Um, yeah. yeah. Morgan Spurlock, he, he talked about, what you talked about feeling jittery. He talked about the rush of when you eat at McDonald's, he said, you feel really good. Like whatever they put in that food, you feel great until you crash and then you yeah. want it again. And yeah. has a highly addictive quality to it. It's like a drug. Yeah. Right. And, and it's, it's, you're talking about the rate of inflation in life, how, you know, the cost of movies have gone up, the cost of health care. We still have a dollar menu, which has been running for 25 plus years, <laughs> the 99 cent burger. And that should scare yeah. people. The, that, that should set off red flags for, for kids. They just think it's great. Like, wow, 99 cents. But if you're an adult, and you want to feed your kid, you go, there, there should be something in you that says, wait a second, wait a second, the price of everything has gone up over the course of my life, except this. Yeah. How do they make this so cheap? Yeah, how are chicken McNuggets the same price they were when I was a teenager? Right, and does right. that make me want to put that in my body? And the answer right. should wasn't be it, no. Wasn't it like like $5 for 20 of them? Hasn't it been that like since we were kids? Yes. Yeah. Like five bucks for 20 McNuggets? It hasn't changed. No, like it, literally, it hasn't changed in like 25 years. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that's like terrifying. So, yeah, I think that even if you try, if you're in a certain demographic, it's just going to be really difficult for you to be healthy. Do you know what I mean? And then, you know, if you're in the inner city, I suppose you have the, the added bonus of not necessarily having easy access to nature, right? If, you, if you're poor and you live in the country, you have you have access to nature theoretically. Do you know what I mean? But you don't have so, access to healthcare because the only uh, right. doctor is two hours away. You know? Right. The only right. There are trade-offs everywhere say. you live. Right. So we can we can come back to it. Right. So when my dad was in the hospital for he had pancreatic cancer, the way the doctors in Jersey dealt with him was atrocious. It was disgusting. <laughs> like literally, it's disgusting. These aren't bad houses robert wood johnson's a pretty reasonable hospital you know what i mean things like that it was awful my medical experience here from my primary up all the way to my cardiac surgeon amazing really amazing everybody's nice they ask they answer my questions my cardiologist calls to check up on me just hey just call and see how you're doing He'll spend 10, 15 minutes on the phone with me. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like, you know, maybe it's just like they've been get they've gotten such a bad rap that they all have a new platform and it seems genuine, but it's a bunch of bullshit. But it doesn't seem like it. It seems like not that they genuinely care like I'm their friend or anything like that, but like they genuinely seem to have, they're just nicer. It's not even about care and concern. They're just nicer. Well, let me jump in there because knowing nothing of either situation, yours or your father's, 
I can approach it from the outside from maybe a different angle. And what I think is in many situations in life, everything is top down. Mm-hmm. And so who runs the organization and how it's run filters into the experiences you have on a personal level. So absolutely, if, if there's absolutely. a piece of shit in charge in Jersey at a hospital, that can filter through the entire system and infect everyone so that everyone has a bad attitude. Whereas in Iowa, when we, when we took my son in, everyone was just fantastic. Like you said, from start to finish, we bumped into her, yeah. we, we bumped into her twice with Truman, like once in the summer, like I said, it happened in February. And she's like, there's the little man, like just, just memory, like, you know, she, she didn't recognize us as much. Like, wait, you look familiar. Like, oh, I know him. And we're like, yeah, he had like, yes, yes. I remember we were so relieved, you know, like, it, yeah, just enthused about life. And yeah. I, I, I don't want to blame any healthcare system, but it could be a top-down attitude. I think it's, I think it's that. I think it's also location-based. I think the closer, like, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, people are just kind of dicks. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and I don't say that in a Famously way, so. No, it, New York right, wears like, it as a like badge New of pride. Yorker, New Yorkers, right. Like, what the fuck are you looking at? You know what I mean? Like, what are you waving at me for saying hello? Like, they actually, like, it's a it's a badge of honor for them to be assholes. You know what I mean? Like, hey, we're New Yorkers. We're allowed to be dickheads because that's who we are. And it's like, yeah, but like when it comes to like medicine and shit, like why be bought? Why? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like every every cop, every medical person, half the club owners, most of the musicians, like they're just people are just assholes and they think it's cool. Like they're proud of themselves for that. Coming to your wedding, stopped at my grandmother's house in Ohio. Ohio. Yeah, so we're driving up. Yeah, we're driving up, and I guess we had to pass through Indiana, if I'm not mistaken. And the speed limit goes uh, from where you are. Well, from when you were in Jersey, it would go Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa. There you go. Perfect. So we were coming out of Indiana, going into. Illinois right if that makes sense mm-hmm. and the speed limit is 70 there yes I was doing 85 <laughs> so because it's the middle of the night I got a white woman next to me sleeping in the car it's middle of the night which means you got lights on your car is easy to see easily yeah. you know and I'm flying down the road Cop pulls me over. I know, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to get a ticket. I know I am because I'm out of state. I can't fight it. And he's got me dead to rights. Right. And I got a white girl sleeping in the car next to me, <laughs> right? which, you know, probably it may matter, may not, you know, I'm just being silly. But like, so he comes back, he hands me a warning. He goes, hey, man, really, speed limit's somebody here. That's plenty fast enough. A little advice for you, just set your cruise control at 70 and just have a good day. And he let me go. And I was like, what is going on here? Like, what the fuck is going on here? Because I've been harassed in Jersey, Connecticut, New York, like those three places in particular for going five miles over the speed limit. They'd yank me out of the car, throw me up against it, throw my shit out looking for drugs. Like it was a fucking nightmare. 
the fucking nightmare. Almost every time I got pulled over, it'd be some bullshit thing that I wasn't doing, or it'd be such a, like, it'd be a real thing. But six miles over the speed limit, like, come on. Like, I know that it's, I'm six miles over the speed limit, so you got me. But I'm kind of just going the flow of traffic. You know what I mean? Like, and that doesn't make it right. But here is a guy who had me dead to rights, 15 over, out of state and everything else, no way to contest it. I just would have paid it and put money in their pockets. And he was like, ah, have a nice day. And then there's other places where I end up in court and they go, we're gonna hit you with this, 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 this. We're gonna give you eight points for this. I'm like, eight points? What are you, crazy? Or you can plead it down to four if you just agree to this. And I'm like, oh. If you like, just agree just to pay fucking, the fine, that's generally right, what it is. Is scam. We won't yeah. get your insurance. We just want your money. Right. And I was just like, I'm just like a working guy who was late to work one day. He used to play in a church. And so I'm going on and I was feeding a little bit and I was. So he had me. But I was just like, when I got to court and they gave me my options, like, I was like, that's not a choice. Do you know what I mean? That's not a choice. Like, that's like, it's an obvious you're just going to take my 500 bucks and that's what you're going to do so that I can get out of here. But I'm like, I'm just a working guy, just trying to get to work, man. Like trying to get to work and pay some bills. And like, why aren't you guys going after criminals? Like there's criminals that you could actually be going after. I talked to my dad about it and he said, he said something funny, but true. He said, son, criminals don't pay. It's, they don't pay like you know what I mean they, they don't pay they don't pay their tickets they don't pay their fines they don't do stuff like that it's regular people who actually pay that stuff yeah and so that's why they go after regular people and I was so mad but I gotta tell you man out here I haven't had any dealings with the Philly cops so whatever like knock on wood um but like the Philly medical people world of difference world of difference just a, really and, and probably, i wonder uh, if probably still behaving since blowing up uh, that city block for a move back in the 80s yeah i mean i think it's also just a matter of where you are in philly right yeah. like if you're in north philly i imagine the cops aren't super nice right if you're where i am i'm in mount airy i imagine they're a bit nicer it means a higher tax bracket so they're you know what i mean like you get what you pay for ultimately like when, just when like people food complain, Right, exactly. But when people complain about cops and they're like, the cops in our town, in our city do this, and then other people go, well, that's not a lot of the cops are in my town. It's like, yeah, it's the best, it's like the best doctors end up in the best hospitals, you know what I mean? They, they don't end up in the fly-by-night clinics, you know what I mean? You know, that's just not how it works. And the best cops don't end up, you know, patrolling the shittiest parts of, of an area. Do you know what I mean? The best cops end up in the best areas. And so it, it could just be an infrastructure thing. Like they could be like, you well, know, also, like we talk about police violence and stuff, but it could largely just be that the shitty cops end up in the shittier areas. You know what it, I mean? Like yeah, it, it because, might just be that simple, you know? I mean, that's, that's too simple, but it, but that might be a huge part of it. I don't know. Too simple, but it also goes back to what we were saying about being in control of our own destiny. Um, um, I got to talk to uh, someone in the Navy once. I'm, I'm doing shows for the military, and uh, he was higher rank. He wasn't he wasn't up to major or anything, but he he was uh, you know wasn't a private. And 
can't remember how we got on this discussion, but he said, the military is easy. You just put your head down and go to work. I mean, they talk about people that flame out or they don't like scrubbing potatoes and they hate washing the, the swab in the deck with a toothbrush. But the thing is, once you do that, the guys above you go, huh, all right, he's got tenacity. You know, he, he squares his shoulders and does what he's told. And there, nobody likes scrubbing a deck with a toothbrush. Nobody likes getting in trouble or, or, or washing potatoes or any, any of the shit aspects of the military. He said, but if you do it, if you put in your time and do it for a few months, the instant you get away from that, you're like, you're set. He said, I'm going to do 20 years and get out. I, I, I've already got it in front of me. He said, so many people flame out in the beginning because it is hard. He said, once you get over that hump and it, and I'm, I'm, I'm relating this completely poorly and any police officer can come on and tell me to fuck off but it could be the same thing where you come into the force and you either have a plan of action to to you see your career in the future and you work toward it or you don't and you end up you know like oh yeah he's got the shit shift or if you have an attitude problem or you don't rub elbows with the right people you get the shit shift in the yeah. shit neighborhood. who knows yeah i mean it could be something as simple as that i mean it <laughs> <laughs> really good you know let's 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 wrap this around to where we started though because by saying that i thought of a, a, my current greatest fear because we we started talking about fear and well before i continue you said that you almost had the same thing after it was over especially after that second experience is that when everything sort of hit you because when i talked to you pre-surgery you I would say you were about just hearing your voice. I would say you were about 85% you, you weren't panicked. You weren't afraid, but I could hear in your voice that you were hesitant. You're like, okay, I got to do this. I got to get it done. Not happy about it, but I'm going to do it. You weren't like, oh shit, dude, I got to get heart surgery. This sucks. I'm so worried. After you came through it, did you, did you look back or did it hit you? Like it hit me where like, wow, that really could have been it. Or is that what was happening in the emergency room or what was the outcome basically to get, to get back on that track? I'll say when I was in the hospital, every doctor that I dealt with, most of the nurses and nurse practitioners, I said the same thing to them, particularly the doctors, but pretty much everyone. I said, listen, there are a lot simpler ways to make $250,000 a year. There really are, you know? And I said, so I really appreciate what you guys do because you didn't have to do this. And I'm normally a grin and bear it, grit your teeth, you know, right? Like, just like start scrubbing the fucking deck. Just start, just get that shit over with and move on with your fucking life. You know, I'm normally that guy. But there is no amount of visualization, vision board, positive thinking that I could have done that would have gotten me through this. At least if there is, I don't know the techniques, right? And I said, so you guys legitimately saved my life. And you could have been doing any other thing you want to do with your life. You're all smart people. Some of you are attractive, you know? <laughs> but, like, but you know what I mean? Like, like there's many things that they could do to make that same amount of money. And one of the doctors laughed and he said, yeah, it's true. There are a lot easier ways to make the amount of money we make. He knows, he goes, I got friends who are in finance who make the same amount of money 
They put in their 40, 50 hours a week. Maybe there's 60, 70 hours in the beginning, but once they settle in, it like, you know, it's pretty straightforward. And they laugh at how, how much I have to work and how difficult it is to make the same amount of money. He said, so money is not ever why you should get into medicine. And I thought that was really interesting. Well, that, this goes to something you and I talked about a while ago. When, when, when we talked about you tell musicians, if you can do anything else, do it. And yeah, I said, comedians, <laughs> get yeah. a real job and just do comedy on the side for fun. And then I had a teacher tell me like, look, you should only get into teaching if you have a passion for teaching. It's, it's everything in life. And, and this is yeah. cheesy and it's stupid and I get it. But what is your life calling? What is your passion? And it sounds like just through what you have said that some of those doctors, it's what they enjoy doing. They, they, I don't want to say it's their yeah. calling. I can't speak for them, but something made them do it. Maybe it was, uh, I don't want to be a doctor, so I have money, but they stuck with it. Something in them has, has, has they've, they've got it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's something to be said for that. Do you know what I mean? For... For just being, for understanding that what you're doing has a larger effect on the world at large. And, and it's actually funny because one of the guys was like, well, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm a musician. They said, I'm not saving lives. You know, he says, yeah, but you are. He said, when people come to a show, it may be it's only a temporary fix, but you allow them to let go of whatever happened beforehand and in this 45 to 90 minute thing, they're free. They can fall into the music. You can explain things that they need explaining. Like you can put their emotion into words, help clarify things they believe, or just play something that allows them to dance and have a good time for 90 minutes. You know what I mean? And I, and I thought about that. And for me, having been a musician, that kind of want to escape from my life has never been a thing for me, you know? But I remember when I was when I was teaching yoga, one of my first yoga teaching gigs was at a gym, at a health club. Uh, They had class from seven thirty to nine, three times a week, and so I went and taught it. And I think I made like fifty bucks a class, maybe. You know what I mean? And one day, I went a little bit over. Because I was just, we want. I want to throw in a couple of new positions and postures, and do do some more assists and things like that. And so the relaxation, instead of being like ten to twelve minutes, was like five to five or six minutes. And like three or four people came up to me at the end of the class, were like, "You can't do that." I'm like, "What do you mean?" And the one guy said to me with a perfectly straight face, dead serious, "This is that ten minutes is the only time I have to relax all day." You can't take that away from me. Hmm. And I was like, holy shit. Like there are people who live in a world in which they are stressed out from the time they wake up to the time they get to yoga class. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's 7.30 at night. And then when they leave at nine, there's more stress waiting for them at home and then they fall asleep. And I was like, wow. And it really showed me that like, I can complain about money. I can complain about, oh, there's no fucking gigs. I, like right now we all have legitimate shit to complain about. But what I can't complain about 
is a rampant, rabid desire to like erase my life and have a new one. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, even when I, you know, neither one of us is uh, Daniel Stern and City Slickers. You know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. They're telling him you got to yeah. do over, you know, and he's like, how's my life look now? I'm, I'm divorced. She's going to get wiped out. I lost my job. And they're like, yeah, well, I mean, in the end, they, they say, I, don't, I don't have that. I, you're right. Neither one of us wants to escape. Yeah. I, I don't have that thing where like I have a, a need to escape my life. Now, are there things I, I am actively doing to make it better? Of course. Are there things I need to get in line with and ways in which I need to grow up? Of course. But the basic existence of my life is not something I need to escape from, like yeah. to the to that degree. You know what I mean? It's just not my world. And in that way, I feel really lucky. You know what I mean? Like I feel really lucky that I have a life that is not oppressive in that way. You know what I mean? Like because I know people who go to work and they hate their job, but they make good money and they can't get out of it. Because they have all the things, they have all the trappings that, that that economic success gives you, and those trappings become needs, not just wants. They become it's like they just become baked into your life in a way that you need them or you believe you do. You become used you know? to a certain lifestyle, is what it is. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to downgrade from the know. Toyota Highlander to the Honda Civic, right? Which. I wonder if you stop caring what people think, you know, if that's a real thing. Many, particularly growing up, not so much now. Like most of the people I know have money now, drive fancy cars and live in fancy houses and shit like that, right? It's like conspicuous wealth. But when I was when I was growing up, you didn't know who the who the people in your town were that had the money. You know so what I mean? Like they, they were, because I don't remember paying attention to her. Maybe it's because we were poor, white trash that. It never mattered to me. I didn't, I didn't, I don't remember noticing who had money until seventh, eighth grade, probably about seventh grade, seventh grade, because that's when I moved to the new town and everybody had these established cliques. And I obviously was not part of the cool clique. So that was, it wasn't until seventh grade that I really started to notice what money was and that we had never had. Any. Yeah. I mean, when I say little, I'm thinking like 13, 14, 15, right? I don't like, know what's up in the grade. Like, yeah uh probably around 13 you know somewhere around there i mean i just remember going to my boss's house one day i was working at a hardware store and i went to my boss's house and i was like wow this is a nice house like it wasn't huge it was just nice quality stuff it's just but better drove, than what you had and that you noticed yeah that. yeah, yeah had, and he had but but he but he wore ordinary clothes he drove a beat up old station wagon. Like he had a normal watch, not some Rolex. And come to find out a few years later, the guy had millions of dollars in the bank. Like he just wasn't into that whole, like I need everybody to see how much money I have because my value as a person comes from my money. Money to him was just a tool and he could save it and use it and it would work for him. But it wasn't something he used to improve his status in life. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like, particularly hip hop culture, like the, with the you know, like I got all this got a money. diamond put in his head. Right. Exactly. Right. I got all this money. Let me do all this stuff. But the same thing is true in in certain kind of rock and roll culture. It's like, yeah, you wear your dirty jeans, you're this, but you pull up in a Corvette. 
yeah. you know what I mean? And it's just like, right, there's this thing that says, like, the money, there's, like, shame attached to not having money. I don't, that I don't I think that is necessary, you know what I mean? It's, it's, so it's probably a different, for a different yeah, but I, I remember just being a, I'm not a kid, but a teenager, young adult. I remember when, when in our 20s and reading about whatever celebrities that had houses in Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, London, Paris. And I'm like, why? Why the fuck do you need five houses? I mean, it, it, it never made sense to me. The, the idea of great, you get to visit, say you own 12 houses, you visit one th- once a month, one of every month out of the year. I mean, it just... Or you just always have somewhere to go like, oh, I'm bored. Let's up and go to Paris. You, you couldn't get that from the, you're rich. You couldn't get that from the penthouse suite of a Marriott that, that you need to, I, I don't know. Extravagant. rental of, yeah, they, there's, there's a lot in there. So that, that's for a different show. Yeah. Um, um, but so do you have, trying to bring this back to the beginning as we start to close down. Um would you say that you have less fear now or the same or more, or do you think you will look at it like a pendulum where, okay, you just went through this experience and so you feel a certain way, but eventually you'll swing and end up in center again. And if that's the case, do you think your center will now be just slightly off to one side or the other that you'll have changed? Because I don't know how much I changed after my son's experience. Um, I don't know what I was afraid of before that experience, uh, before becoming a parent, having kids. Um, and I don't know what I'm afraid of now other than go back to, uh, I think I said Dick Vermeil, the coach of the, the, the Rams who only remember the failures. Um, I'm trying to, I've got, I've got ideas in my head. I don't want to spit them out. Let's, let's go a different path. I, I think I've talked about this before. There was a, the Dukakis campaign. There was a staffer for the Dukakis campaign. And they asked him like, hey, when did you realize you were going to lose? And he said, when we lost. And that means he, he thought Dukakis like up until election days, like we're going to pull this out. And it's like every poll, everybody knew that, that Bush was going to win. But Dukakis, his people said, no, they were so blinded. They said, you can't allow negativity in even if negativity was reality. And I'm telling you this because when I put it into my own life, I try to be neutral to optimistic. And the fear I have comes in at 3 a.m. when I wonder if anything will ever hit. Like, like I remember putting up my first album. Okay, this is gonna be a game changer. Nobody gave a fuck. Um, put up my second album, you know, like now I'm on album number seven, my next one will be number seven. And I, I sort of have in the back of my head, I'll put it out, it's just attrition, but nobody's gonna give a fuck. I suppose I should see who's at the door even though I don't fucking want to. <laughs> no, no. Right, so th- those are that, my fear is that I will continue to produce because that's what I have to do, uh, write, perform, and that at the end, I mean, because you talk about right now, it's a struggle. It's always a struggle. Um, and say, how do I phrase this now? It's sort of interrupted my flow of thought. Say I'm not the greatest comedian, fine. I also know that I'm not the worst. 
there should be work out there and it should be easier to come by instead of having to prove yourself over and over. I wonder when that spot will be, which is, oh, acceptance, like, yeah, this guy gets the job done. Um, do you have that fear of not getting gigs or what if it all falls apart or what are your fears now? Um, or what I said earlier, do you think that you are off kilter? You'll return to a different center it is obviously a life changing experience, but people have life changing experiences all the time. And then they just return to who they were. There's a, there's a thing that I read where they say that most people, you make as much money as you believe you are worth. And when people make 10 to $15,000 more than that, they find a way to squander that ten to $15,000. And when people make ten to $15,000 less than that, that's when they get into hustle mode. But hustle mode only lasts up until you reach that number that you think you deserve, whether that number is 75,000 or 100,000 or 15 or 20,000, I don't know. I'm but what I can agree say- with it. I'm gonna interrupt to say, I don't believe that at all. Uh, Cause Maybe I'm an egotistical cunt and uh, have no real ability to objectively look at my abilities, but uh, I don't believe I'm worth what I've been making for the past. Maybe, maybe like, I believe right but, now but, I'm making what I should have made 15 years ago, maybe, but uh, if, again, maybe it's my ego, maybe I'm just a piece of shit, but I do not believe and I hustle and I send wow. out and I, and it just seems like there's nothing but a series of closed doors and, and, yeah. um, or why, you know, oh, you got a TV credit and it can't, you can't use you. Um, and, and so, yeah, I hustle and I, I believe I'm worth more. I just, it, so I don't know that I, I, mean, I really I hate to think I was holding myself back through some, some, some. Well, one of the things that, that, that 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 I realized when I was in the hospital, because I didn't sleep for like six days. Well, I didn't eat either. One, because the hospital food is just atrocious. Yeah, it's just the worst. Like, so I wasn't eating, and I wasn't sleeping. And you, you're there were COVID. You couldn't have visitors, so we when I couldn't have visitors. for three days. We had people bringing us food, and I could leave and get food, and yeah. and we didn't need a fucking thing from the hospital. I think we we tried the first meal, like okay, let's do. Oh nope, no, not eating it. Yeah, oh, it was crazy. But I, I it was hard for me to fall asleep because no, I was afraid. Well, I mean, for all for a whole host of reasons, but one of them it was mental because I was literally afraid I wouldn't wake up. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and I, and it's kind of silly in retrospect, but when I was sitting there and I was like, God, like it was just weird. Right. But being up that, that long and just listening to podcasts and listening to music and just kind of, you know, spending time just with myself, you know, for hours and hours and hours and hours at a time, I really, understood that there are many ways in which I am my own worst enemy. And it, because much like you, I believe I'm worth more than I get paid. I believe that I have certain talents and gifts that are really useful. 
and that they are underappreciated and things like that. What I also realize is that I'm not taking what is most special about me because it is the thing that's divergent. It's the thing that makes me different from other people. So there's like a natural inclination to want to be part of a community. And by highlighting what is different about me, it puts me a little bit on the outs with my community. Not completely, but a little bit. And I could see how in certain ways, the thing that I'm most afraid of putting forth is probably the thing that will actually set me free. Hmm. If that makes sense. Do you know what I mean? It does. And so I would not argue with you about your own personal life because who knows, right? But in my world, I can fundamentally say that my experience has taught me that life is too short to be afraid of things. And you know what happens if you put forth the thing that makes you different from every other comic, right? Yeah, you might not be part of this one community, but that's the only buy-in to get up to the next level, right? The next, like, because most of the comics that you know who are, who are really successful are kind of specialists. You know what I mean? They're really successful ones. They're specialists, right? Like, you, I mean, the Chappelle's and Bill Burr's and people like that, it's kind of obvious, right? Yeah. But like, but really, like, how do you pretend to be Chappelle or Bill Burr? Uh, that's why I said that I I, I, I might not be as good. I, I didn't use their names or like say I'm not the greatest comedian. I'm not, I don't say like, oh, I deserve to be headlining theaters and in movies like them. But at least I should be fucking doing all the clubs. But so I'm but, like, but I mean, but what, even but if I say if I aim for upper middle of the road um, that I think that I should be have have achieved that. I don't know. Right. I, I, I just don't want to make it seem like I'm so egotistical. Like hey, fuck Chappelle. I could do what he does. No, he's Chappelle. But I mean, but like, but there is, there's a thing that you have that makes you unique. There's a thing that you have that nobody else can do, right? There is a way. Right, exactly. (laughs) But there's something true about that. You know what I mean? Like, I'm playing a lot of slide guitar these days and I hear people say things. When I was, when we were in college, I remember taking a bass lesson from this guy and I said, what are you doing? What are you doing? He goes, well, I'm going to go get a job. You know, he'd already graduated and he's going to go get a job. And I was like, why? He goes, because I realize I'm not ever going to be Jocko. So I might as well just give up the base. And I was thinking to myself, that's dumb. And I knew that at 19. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like at 19, I was aware of the fact that that's an idiotic thing to say. Because, yeah. I might not ever be Derek Trucks, right? Who's a phenomenal slide player. There's so many of them out there these days. So many great players. But that's okay. You know what I mean? B.B. King played five notes. And he's B.B. King. You know what I mean? Right? Like, find your five notes. You know? See, I, I have that a little bit because we've talked about this um, mm-hmm. with, with mental limitations. Is I, I shifted away from music after the band I was in fell apart because I said, oh, I know I'm not going to be sting. I'm not going to, I don't have the voice. I don't have the talent. And I always thought that, it, I think the example I used is I don't understand Bon Jovi. Like Bon Jovi is comfortable enough to go up to sting and go, Oh, I'm a musician too. Whereas, you know, it's like, are you really though? Are, are you really a musician, John Bon Jovi? 
And, and I would be too self-aware to approach Sting and say, I play bass. Whereas as much as I know I'm not Chappelle, I would have no problem meeting him and saying, oh, I'm a comedian too, or Burr. Like I, I don't have that same Im- uh, intimidation. So that's where comedy became my calling, which is, oh, I feel comfortable enough doing this, even if I don't, I don't feel the pressure of, I have to be that person or be like them or achieve or have their same talents. I know I'm me and I'm comfortable with that. And do you think that that's reflected in your, in your routine? I get told it is. Okay. Then, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to gauge that. You know what I mean? Like, you know how to gauge it and maybe the audience does, but I don't know. I know mm-hmm. that I was spending a lot of time whoring myself out for a lot of different gigs that were kind of all fun. Like playing music is fun to me, whether good music, bad music, I just, I like playing music. But when I started doing the thing with Katie and we were writing and then really being able to see music that I had a heavy hand in creating come to life, even when we were in the early stages and we sucked, like it was, we were terrible. Like it was terrible. Like it really was. The band was loose and sloppy and like we were awful. But we had this thing that no matter how bad we were, people kept on coming out because they're like, you guys got a thing. And what we had was we had fire. Like we had fire and passion and we believed in what we were doing. So even if it was rough around the edges and fucked up and stuff, people still liked it because we just went for it. Every time we went for it, like, like I would always say, the one rule we have here is we do not, we never phone it in. We do not phone it in. That is the only rule I have is we don't phone it in. And that's what we, that's what we're known for. We don't fucking phone it in. You know what I mean? And the times that we have, they've been like the worst shows ever. You know what I mean? Like just fucking you. Oh yeah. That's just you know a given. That's what it's going to be like. Yeah. But we fly without a net. You know what I mean? You, you do it without a net. You don't phone it in. That's what you do. And I feel like that wasn't necessarily something that I was comfortable doing in other situations. I don't know why. Because it's not like I can't be a sideman and also not phone it in. But when you show up to a gig and it's like there's ha- some half-ass rehearsal, you know what I mean, for some artist who it's like their vanity project and the songs are remarkably mediocre, it like it almost feels like that's where my ego would become my problem. Like, why do you deserve the best of me when you're not even giving the best yourself, right? Yeah. Now, that's my ego because you should always give your best, right? Like, Absolutely. Why not take the moment like, to shine yeah, in, a, in exactly. a less than a stellar situation? Young, just young and stupid. Yeah. But I would ask you the same thing. Like, are you being fearless when you get out there? And if so, then that's all you can do. Like, all you can do is get out there and be fearless and connect with the audience and have some kind of, um, like people buy emotion. They don't, like, they don't actually care. Like they care if your music is good or not good. But what they really want is, does it make them feel something? Yeah. You know what I mean, like that's really what they buy is emotion. Now, is it easier to sell emotion with a, with a good melody that's sung in tune over some nice chords? Yeah, it's easier. Yeah. But how many songs do you listen to 
where the singer like backs the old records, man, pitchy ass singers and people making mistakes before they could punch in stuff. Oh, like some I, of that I've, stuff is just terrible. I've had this conversation. You love it. I've had this thought in this conversation a million times. Um, like American Idol has done so much damage to music because it's yeah. a, it's it's about perfection. Whereas you take someone like Tom Petty and you put him on American Idol and he's got that nasally voice, you know, is he going to advance? No. Liz Fair? No. Anthony Kiedis? No. But are they perfect for what they do? Fuck yes. Would right. anyone insult Tom I mean, Petty would, or Anthony would, would Kiedis? can't sing, but he is I mean, fantastic in the Red Hot Chili right. Absolutely. But I mean, Aretha, Nina Simone. Would Nina Simone pass round one of American Idol? Maybe. Yeah. I doubt it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Billie Holiday? Like, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, the examples are, are, but I mean, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, he called up his dad. He goes, Dad, I'm going to start singing. His dad's like, Really? He goes, Yeah, I heard this guy named Bob Dylan. He can't sing for shit, and everybody <laughs> loves him. So, and he writes these really cool songs, and I dig his music, but he can't really sing for shit. So, I'm going to start singing. And Jimmy was never confident about his voice, ever. He never thought he was a good singer. But somehow you listen to Jimi Hendrix, you don't go, God, what a shitty singer. You yeah, think that guy sounds like Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> he just does what he does, you know what I mean? So my question is, what is that? Because I think for him, his greatest fear was being a singer. That was the thing he had to overcome. To lift him up to the next level, he had to get over that fear of singing. And he did, and that's what allowed him to become the artist we know as Jimi Hendrix. But without that, he just would have been a side, a side man for other people. The question is, are you facing whatever fear you have when you get on stage? Basically, that might be what you're asking, but what I'm hearing is, Nathan, start singing your dick jokes. <laughs> Try it. <laughs> See what happens. Sing a couple. <laughs> uh, I doubt you have any gigs coming up because of uh, your circumstances. When will you be able to play, or what? How? What is the recovery process? Let's wrap this up. What What do you have going on? For For me, I have another couple weeks of just kind of chilling, mm-hmm. binge watching stuff. Like I, I watched all of Expanse, all like of it. Every season, yeah. on season two, and I told you to yeah. watch it to <laughs> after because I, mean, we were... I can't. Yeah, you, you can't do happened? anything. We watch one a I, night. I, you, know, you know what happened? I, I felt great. I feel great. I feel fine. And I just pushed myself too hard. And I could feel that I pushed myself too hard. And I was like, ah, so I'm not done healing. Like, okay, so now I got to take it back another step. But I think in another two to three weeks, like another week, I'm fine. Another two to three weeks, I'll be great. You know what I mean? But uh, but we have I think we have a a Zoom gig. Now we uh, let's interrupt. This is the Katie Henry band. Uh, yes, we're, we're working on a new record. record. We're, we're working on our new record, so that's exciting. That's where most of our time is taken up is just kind of sifting through all the material we have. Because that you can do. And, you can listen. You, know, you can practice. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah. So we got we got to cut that down to like. 15 to 20 songs that out of which we'll pick 12 you know yep. so we're doing that we have a, a zoom gig for this company that, that just puts on performances uh that's in april sometime and then we have a festival oh, we have in june. April. <laughs> yeah we have yeah the, but i think the next actual gig we have is in april 
right. like like real official like this is a thing you know i think it's april you know, i got summer's uh, a couple months, of weeks yeah uh your grandma's old haunting grounds, uh, February uh -huh. 25, 26, and 27 at the Funny Stop in Cuyahoga uh -huh. Falls. So mm -hmm. anybody that is anywhere near Cuyahoga Falls, anyone listening in Cleveland, it's only 45 minutes to the south, roughly. But uh, yeah, That's I'll throw right. a up for that. Um, I'm going to close on this. Uh, I, I, I thought it and then I forgot it. And I'm so glad I remembered it because it is... <laughs> Uh, my wife was more worried about you than I was because, again, maybe I went into denial mode like, oh, he's going to be fine. He's going to get his heart surgery. Like heart surgery, is, it's a big fucking deal. But I and they do it now, but they do it three times. They do it three times a day now. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's a big deal, but they kind of got it. They know what they're doing. You know, Well, those three days that you were asleep and recovering, she's like, has he texted you? Has he let you know he's OK? And I'm like. And I'm like, no, no, he's fine. No, no news is good news. And she said something. I don't remember what she said. Well, how do you know he's okay? How do you know that he's fine? And I said, without thinking, well, because if he had died, he would have stopped by and let me know. And uh, <laughs> it was like, it just came out of my mouth, but it felt right. Like, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in an afterlife. But at the same time, I had this strong feeling like, well, if something went south and he was not with us anymore, he would have at least had the decency to stop and tell me that he yeah. was dead. So I'm assuming he's alive because I haven't heard otherwise from him. And, and Lydia thought I was crazy. But at the time, I meant it. When I said that, I, I absolutely meant that you would have stopped by and let me know in some yeah. way or another. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, my friend. haunted you for a few minutes yeah. every day. You know, <laughs> in recovery, I will talk to you without the voyeurism of anybody watching yeah, man. in a couple of days, and we will we will record again. Uh, after yeah, I look forward to it. Good yeah, to see your face. It. Good to hear yeah, you. Yeah, you voice. too, man. Yeah, and dot com, katiehenrymusic.com. Absolutely.com. Share the video with other people. Spread it around. Yeah, man. Bye. Yeah, it's good to see you, man. See ya.